Good morning, church. I have uh, been away all week. I was in Ukiah. If you don't know where Ukiah is, it's on Highway 101. Um, sort of the wide spot on the road before you go up to Willits. It's kind of the only way I can describe it. You start climbing a hill and you've gone too far, you missed it. You kind of go through uh, the freeway ends and then you go through some narrow two-lane roads and then the freeway starts again and look to your left, that'll be Ukiah. I was sharing um, at the school with the children all week, which is just such a cool thing to get to do. I had the 8th to 10th graders in the morning and uh, went directly from them to kindergarten, first and second. Third grade's too big, so they put a few third graders in with the second graders because it was just too big to put all the third graders with the fourth graders. And so you had to go from talking to some, you know, 14, 15-year-olds and then talking to some 5, 6, 7, and 8-year-olds. Then after that, I got the middle ones. After I'd practiced on the other two, I think the middle ones got the best deal. But I got a stack of notes from the kids, which are always fun. I, I was telling Brenda last night, you know, I wish I had, I don't know if I should even, sometimes I think I should put a box in the back and just let you read the notes the kids have because they're, they're just so cool. One little kid wrote me my favorite note in a long time. The note, all the kids were supposed to draw pictures apparently. His... Not so much. And he wrote across there in letters that went across the page at, a, at an angle down toward from one side to the other in sort of different sized script in printing as he was going along. And he wrote out the word or something approximating the word, I'm not very artistic, period. And then he wrote, P.S. Can't spell. <laughs> it was awesome. It was my favorite one. There were lots of cool ones, but I mean, I love the honesty. <laughs> Not very artistic. Can't spell. <laughs> and then he put his signed his name. I love that. I love that relationship that says I can just be out there. I'll just be what I am. I just, this is who I am. This is how it works. And I pictured myself as a fifth grade boy putting the exact same thing on the sheet. Not very artistic. Can't spell. Walt. They were uh, a blessing to be with, and I appreciate your prayers. Um, this is a school that has uh, a, a pretty solid majority of kids who are not part of the Adventist Church family, um, some Christians, some not, and so it was really fun to uh, be able to share, share Jesus with them. I uh, shared with them 
um, largely from the story of the prodigal son. I shared all three stories there with the younger kids, um, but I spent a lot of time uh, sharing with them that moment when God's grace meets your need, that collision between the son who's turned and headed for home and the father who's run out to meet him on the road, that point of grace that we talk about. And um, it was just a real blessing to be with them and to share with them. So uh, appreciate your prayers. That's what I, my week was this week. I got to spend a little time with my, my granddaughter as a result because she lives there in Ukiah. And I uh, got to have a few meals with her and her mom and her dad and hang out. So it was a blessed week in a lot of ways. I'm good to, glad to be home, glad to be in my own bed, and glad to be here with you this morning. Um, today we are going to talk about a servant of a man who is a servant. The first man knows he's a servant. He was bought and paid for. And he's been clear about that since the day the bill of sale went through. The second man probably wouldn't describe himself as a servant, but it's pretty clear that he is once you start reading the story. The story is in Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to actually be looking at Matthew 8 and Luke 7. So if you want to, uh, want to kind of keep your fingers there or just follow along on the screen, we're going to kind of do a mashup of these two narratives. So a narrative in the Bible simply tells you a story. It's a narration of what happened. We're going to take a little bit from Luke and a little bit from Matthew, and we're going to put them together as they flow through in one narrative. Um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, gives us a setting. It is this setting right here. As best we understand it, that's Mount of Olives. That, that church on the top was built in 1939. It is a commemoration of this as... Or, or not Mount of Olives, I'm sorry. Um, the, uh, the Mount where the Sermon on the Mount was. I can't think of the name for all of a sudden. Anyway, there's a, a, a belief that this is the location... Um, if you're kind of wondering about a group of up to 5,000 people being there, which is thought to be the, the uh, actual size of the group, um, the, the uh, Pope, who was Pope in 2000, came along, and he was going to be at this church, and they set up seats for 100,000 people on this little hill. So it's got plenty of room for the 5,000 people who are thought to have come and, been, and spent the time with Jesus. So um, this is the spot where we believe it was, right along the, the Sea of Galilee. And just oh, a quarter mile or less from the gates of Capernaum. So in the story, that'll be your setting as you start thinking about the place. Physically, that's the spot where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. He walks through that sermon. He's probably up there near the top. People are gathered then in the bowl below. And having been there, it is a sort of a natural amphitheater where you could project a voice into an audience and probably be heard pretty well. So um, that's the setting physically. This narrative mashup between the two is just an attempt to try to gather the pieces that the Bible gives us. Luke gives one set, Matthew gives another set, and pull them together as it makes sense to me. He entered Capernaum, hence from the Mount of Olives, or from the Mount of, uh, boy, from his Sermon on the Mount directly into the city, to the city of Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus... This is the centurion. He sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Does this strike you as unusual? 
It should strike you as unusual because a Roman just had some elders of the Jews go to Jesus on an errand on his behalf. This should be a little bizarre to you because you've got three things that are sort of non sequitur. You have a Roman centurion getting the elders of the Jewish leadership in Capernaum to go and talk to Jesus, this ragtag rabbi from up the hill in Nazareth. Do you get the picture? There's this interesting sort of mess going on here, sort of its own mashup of things are going on. This Roman shouldn't be getting elders of the Jews to do things for him. These elders of the Jews shouldn't be going to Jesus on his behalf. The whole thing's sort of weird. The whole thing sort of sets up an odd setting. So here we have these elders representing a Roman centurion talking to Jesus and asking him for a favor at the city of, uh, of Capernaum. This is the city, according to an artist's rendering, of, uh, of as best we can tell. The city today is in ruins. That large building in the middle would be the synagogue. These piers on the outside would be where, where Jesus met um, Peter, James, and John. Um, this is a fishing village. It's probably no more than 1,000, maybe 1,500 people. The text continues, and when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly. Who's the They. The church leaders, these church elders, these are Jewish leaders from the city of Capernaum. They begged Jesus earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation, and he built us a synagogue. So who was responsible for building the synagogue in Capernaum? A Roman centurion. Now, that's also a little odd, but not terribly odd. Augustus actually told people that they should build uh, synagogues and build places of worship. The philosophers of Greek and Rome said one religion is as good as another. They're just all kind of opiates for the masses. This was not simply a communist idea that Marx came up with. This idea goes all the way back to the philosophers of Greece and Rome. They just believed that religion was kind of an opiate of the masses. It would keep them calmed down, keep them from getting into too much trouble. And so they actually encouraged the building of synagogues by Romans and the building of worship places by Romans to help keep the people out of their hair. So they didn't have one religion over another, really. They weren't that big on religious things, but they were very big on controlling the people. So that he would build a synagogue is not all that unusual. That he would build a synagogue and apparently be an adherent to Judaism is quite unusual. One of the things we discover in this period, first, second century, is that people are getting kind of troubled by the struggle that's going on in their culture. Their culture is a lot like ours. The values are dropping out of the bottom of the culture. The culture is getting to all kinds of weird things, deviant behaviors. All sorts of strange acts are becoming normal in the culture. And as the culture's values begin to weaken and begin to fail, people are looking for an answer. Even Roman leadership, even Roman soldiers are looking for an answer somewhere besides the norms that they're used to seeing in politics and the religions of Roman Greece. And so this is actually a bit of a movement. There's, a, there's some people beginning to, to get some traction with the idea of this monotheistic God and a little bit more values-based understanding of religion that was normal for Christianity, well, in this case, normal for Judaism. So understand that this, is actually a, this Roman soldier might be caught up in a little bit of a movement. Now I want you to stop and think about the application to our time. As the values drop out of the bottom of a society and society loses its underpinnings, it leaves people disoriented. 
the church, frustrated and angry by what happens in the culture, should not go out frustrated and angry. They should go out with support and foundations to prop people up and help them understand where their values really come from. Our role in our society is not to be a wagging finger at all the bad things that are happening. People already know. They can see it on the news every night. Our role in our society is to replace the underpinnings of that society by giving back to our culture the source and the foundations of the values that will will hold them up and stand them fast. This is what we're watching in the first century as Jesus is on the, play, on, on the playing field. The culture is so awash in lost value that they're searching for answers. And Christianity gets its root, gets its taproot in the midst of all of that in the next three centuries. The text continues. We're still in Luke chapter 7. Then Jesus went with them. So here's the story. These guys arrive in Capernaum. Jesus has a big crowd with him. We read that right at the beginning. Large crowd followed him from the Sermon on the Mount over to Capernaum. Capernaum's a fairly small city. As they make their way into the city, it's kind of this uh, sort of the, the picture that I've always thought of is kind of like squeezing like a blob through a narrow space. Um, A little boy handed me a... uh, a little bag full of something. I don't even know what the stuff was the other day when I was at the school. He was just playing with it. It was kind of this slippery thing that you couldn't really hold on to if you squeezed it. And so he handed it to me and I squeezed it and it just squeezed right out of my hand. And, it just, and I, I just kept trying to hold it. And then I realized that it's just going to keep doing that unless I just quit squeezing it. It was just some odd little boy toy, you know. You know, little boys, we like weird things. And we, even adults, if he, t- if he had given it to me to go home, I would have just played with it the rest of the day probably. But it's like that. It's like, like the, the crowds have to almost ooze through the spaces in a small community like this. They can't really just go as a big blob. They have to kind of squeeze into the alleys and through the roads. And so Jesus is kind of making his way. There's no fast progress with Jesus and a large crowd once he's inside Capernaum. So when Jesus turns around and starts heading out with these elders, heading for the home of this centurion, he's not making fast progress. His whole sort of amoeba has to turn, turn around, face the other direction, and go back that way. And guess what? The last are now first, and the first are now last. Just you want to throw that in for good measure. Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, so the, this, this, young, this uh, centurion isn't too far away. He doesn't live too far away. When he's not far from the house, the centurion sent to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Listen to these words, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Interesting words from the centurion. Interesting that this man, who is a, a ruler and a leader among men, these guys are, uh, centurions are, are like, they're like Navy SEALs. Dave, I watched... This is what you do when you're old. You watch documentaries. So I, I watched several documentaries. I watched one on, on Navy SEALs we need to talk about. Because it went all the way back to the frogmen and talked about those guys. I was looking for you in the pictures. They, they, the, the, the story of these guys is that they're, they're similar to Navy SEALs in their, their approach. The, the, the guys who are in leadership in these centurion roles are supposed to be men who are quiet under pressure. 
who can take a lot of stuff and not lose their cool. That's kind of the value that they're looking for. I'll read you a a quote in a little bit about that. But these guys are not usually the ones who are saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think to come myself or think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. So the first message he sends to Jesus from someone in his household is, don't come, don't come to my house. He got the message that Jesus was headed for the house. He said, don't come to my house. I would have come to you myself. I don't even think I'm worthy to do that. He's a Gentile. He knows Jesus is a Jew. For Jesus to come into his house would just raise all kinds of ruckus. Jesus is going, though. Do you recognize that? This is a Gentile's house, and it's going to cause a trouble if Jesus goes there. But Jesus is going. And he's taking his entire entourage with him. So there are going to be plenty of witnesses to the fact that he went into an unclean man's house. Does Jesus hold to the idea that the Romans are unclean by birthright? Apparently not. Apparently not. Now we're over to chapter 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. What's the difference in the story? The centurion is speaking. Apparently what happened is Jesus kept heading for the house. We don't really know exactly how this happened. But apparently what happened, if you put the two stories together, is Jesus kept moving toward the house. And finally the centurion himself comes out and speaks to Jesus. And he says, look, my servant is lying at home. He's paralyzed and he's dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. I'm already kind of halfway there. In fact, I'm most of the way there. I'll just come to the house. I'll be right over. Start the teapot. Because Jesus is British. Everyone knows that. You ever watch a movie? What accent does Jesus always have? I rest my case. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. I think he's repeating the same thing that he, same message that he sent out before. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go. And he goes. If the centurion said to somebody in his cohort, go, and they didn't go, it would be a very bad day for them. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, I understand lines of authority. I am a man of authority, and I understand that you have the authority to heal my servant. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, I understand that you have the authority to commend it from here, and the illness in my servant will go away. Do you see how big this this statement of faith is? Do you remember when the leader of the synagogue came to Jesus to get some help with his daughter? Do you remember what his request was? Same, same town, probably one of the same elders. He says to him, come to my house, lay your hands on my daughter that she might be healed. He's got touch my daughter faith. The centurion's got you don't even have to be present faith. See the difference? The the, the first man, this leader of the synagogue, has a plan for Jesus. You come and you do it in the manner that I want you to do. Ever been guilty of that? Dear Lord, here's my plan for the day. Here's how I'd like you to manage your part of it. Right? This is my project. This is your project. I'll do my part. You do your part. Don't blow it. 
right? And at the end of the day, if it doesn't go go right, who gets blamed for blowing it? Is this reasonable? Just asking. Continuing in chapter 8, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. There are not very many places where it says Jesus marveled. There are not many places where Jesus is taken back by what's going on. You know where he seems to marvel? When faith is involved. Old widow drops her last two coins in the offering. Jesus gathers his disciples around and says, did you guys see that? That is the coolest thing I've ever seen. This guy says, "Ah, wait, you don't need to come to my house to do this. You can do it from here. I understand lines of authority, and I understand you have authority over disease. You have authority of the creator over what goes on with with my servant. You can do it from here. And Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, Assuredly, I say unto you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. I want to stop you again. Many will come from the east and the west. Where are they coming to? East and west is not you're you're coming to the middle. It's just you're coming from a distance. Many are coming from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You need a little, bit of cl- a little bit of background. There was this great, interesting, but bizarre story told by the rabbis. The rabbis said that one day there would be a giant feast. This giant feast would bring together all of the children of Abraham. When they were redeemed, the whole family would be together, sort of this giant Thanksgiving meal. Except, they were supposed to be eating the Leviathan and the Behemoth. So, what they were supposed to be eating was this this giant mythical sea creature, which was going to appear out of the sea and be dinner, and this giant mythical earthquake creature, which was also going to appear on the table as dinner. This is a great kingdom feast that was supposed to have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at it, was this feast where they were going to be eating the equivalent of dinosaurs. Fred Flintstone, anybody? A weird idea, but Jesus is not going to even correct them on what the meal is going to contain. All Jesus is going to say is, Guess who's coming to dinner? Not who you thought. Whole bunch of other people from the east and the west are coming. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. You're inviting a bunch of other people to eat the Leviathan and the behemoth? And you're throwing us out? Do you see? He, he once again throws things upside down. He turns things over. He's saying to the people of Israel, faith is the reason you're at the table. Faith is the reason you're at the table. In the giant patchwork quilt thrown together by the remnants of all the earth, made up of remnants from everywhere, in that giant patchwork quilt that is the church, there's this centurion. He's got his little patch. He has faith. Phenomenal faith. 
He understands what it means to follow after God's heart. And the people around don't. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we look at this picture, we always have them rotisserieing somewhere and there's flames eating at their clothes. That's kind of the image that people have. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth and people are burning. Do you know what gnashing of teeth is? Any of you have a dentist who tells you not to grind your teeth? You have been gnashing your teeth. It's a result of stress and worry and pressure. Grinding your teeth. Clenching your teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, it will be very sorrowful to be, lo- to be locked out, to be left out of this. It will be heartbreaking. This isn't about pain physically. This is about pain emotionally. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Cool story. I love the story. I love the, all the little non sequitur parts to it. All the pieces that are kind of thrown into this salad that makes the story. That, that if you don't stop and look at them, you can just bypass them and think they're normal. They're not normal at all. This is a completely topsy-turvy sort of an event. The people who are gathered around Jesus, who have just heard the Sermon on the Mount, who are following him around, are completely blown away by this. They should be standing back, kind of off, off balance. Like Fred, they grabbed their heart and they said, I'm coming to meet you, Ethel. You've got to be 60-year-olds to know what that is. Ask an older person if you don't know. What manner of man is this centurion? What should we know about him? Polybius, which after doing a little bit of reading about him, is a pretty impressive guy. Greek, who was also a Roman historian, 200 to 118 B.C. Said of the centurions, they must not be so much venturesome, seekers of danger, as men who command, steady in action and reliable. They must not be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their post. Sound like the sort of a person who's going to humbly come to this, this backwater Nazarene rabbi and say, please come and help out. Please come to my side. I'm not worthy for you to be in my house. This is a solid dude though, right? This is the sort of person that you would, you would want on your side if something rough started happening. Right? He's not in a hurry to get in a fight. He's not in a hurry to jump into anything. But he's steady and he's solid And if the time comes, if it's really pressed, he will stand till the end of his life for what is right. Or in maybe this case, what his leading general told him. Normal Roman attitudes about servants. Servants have no rights. Zero rights. Servants have absolutely no rights. The master can mistreat them in any way and they have no recourse. If he beats you, too bad, go home. He breaks one of your limbs, too bad, go home. Cuts off your hand, too bad, go home. You have no rights. He can do anything he wants to you. 
They are nothing more than a tool. There's this, there's this passage from a, a, a person giving agricultural advice to persons who buy, buy a farm. This is, the, this is the advice. If you buy a farm, you should, one, sell off any excess stuff you have, grain, oil, anything you have that's excess, sell it off immediately for the support of the farm. You should review your, review your tools. Anything that is broken or old, you should throw it away. You should review your animals. Anything that is lame or spotted, you should sell it and get rid of it. You should review your servants. Any that are old or unable to function, you should cast them out. He actually says you have three kinds of tools. Inanimate. Animate. And vocal. And they're all just tools. Servants are just tools. They might as well be a hoe or a hammer or a knife. That's it. This soldier, this rock-solid centurion sort of a guy, loves his servant enough to first ask a favor of the Jewish elders. To then go out and proclaim in front of this crowd, I'm not worthy for you to even come into my house. But I would like to ask you, Jesus, to heal my servant. It's a different kind of a relationship with a servant. This is a man who loves and cares about this person who's working for him. That synagogue that he built, this is the synagogue, the remains of the synagogue that's at at Capernaum. That black part on the bottom is the original synagogue built by the Roman centurion in the city of Capernaum. The centurion's humility, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. His faith, only speak, my servant will be healed. Well, I knew I would do that. Sam, can you get me back on that last slide? So I want to finish here. The belief in the miraculous. That's what this is, right? This is the belief in the miraculous. This this servant is so important to him that he's, he's hurting. He's stressed. He's bothered by it. This servant is so loved by him that he's going out of his way to do something for this servant, to try to help him. And he believes that the answer to this is in Jesus. Faith in the miraculous is simply an understanding of God's will and power. You buy that? Faith in the miraculous is simply an understanding of God's will and God's power. Why is he able to stand there in front of Jesus and say, you don't need to come to my house. You, don't need, you have authority to do this. You have the power to do this. You are the creator of the universe after all. You can step into this and make the difference. All you have to do is speak. All you have to do is speak. You realize Genesis 1 was available to him, right? 
You realize Genesis 1 has been around for 1,500 years by this point. If he's read any of the Hebrew scriptures, he may have started at the beginning where it said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke and it happened, and he spoke and it happened, and he spoke and it happened. He sees the authority of God in the voice, in the very speaking. He sees the authority of God over all creation. He sees Jesus as God in human flesh. And as he stands in front of him, he says, I understand chains of authority. I tell people to do stuff. They do it. They don't question my authority. I understand that you are God. And as a result, you have authority to deal with this. How's your prayer life? Is it bold like this? Is your prayer life bold like this? Is your prayer life a little cowardly? Do we go about our prayers like beggars? Do we go about our prayers saying, Oh God, I, 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 I know that, uh, I know that you might, might be interested in helping me out. I don't know. Maybe. Sometimes. I don't know. Or do we come to God and say, God of heaven, I have come to understand that you want me to pray. And that you will act when I ask. I don't know why you'd be willing to do that. But here I am and I'm asking. Are you comfortable praying like that? Are you comfortable coming to God and saying, I believe in your ability to do things that would be considered miraculous. I believe in your ability to do stuff that I can't even understand. I believe that you have authority on the earth to step into my life and to the life of the people around me and make a difference. Do you pray like that? Do you pray like that? Did you used to pray like that? Are you currently praying like that? Here's the deal. Either God is God Or he's not. And if he is the creator of the universe. And he invites you and me to bring our heart's desire to him. Because he loves us. Simply because he loves us. Then. Then the opportunity on our knees is amazing. opportunity on our knees is the direct connection with the God who created the planet. How crazy is that? If the God of the universe says, yeah, I know. In the scope of the universe, you're less than a bug. But you're my bug. And I love you. Ask for my help. No matter where you find yourself, no matter what you've done, no matter what dead end you've run into in your life, ask for my help. By the way, ask for my help for yourself and ask for my help for other people. You know that that guy you love that's down the street in your house and he's sick and he's troubled? Come ask. Ask. Why does the Bible have the line in it? You have not because you ask not. 
Why does the body of Christ today depend more on my wallet and my prayers? Why does the first world church seem to have a lack of interest in the miraculous? We don't need it. I would like for our church to be a place where we pray first. Where our first gut level response is to pray. When something happens, big, small, good, bad, our natural first response is I want, to, I want to take this to God. It really doesn't matter if the five lay pastors and pastors and prayer group makes up, makes up 25 or 30 people in the church. Even if all of that group, which would be great, if all of that group, if all of us immediately responded that way, it would be great. But wouldn't it be better if the whole of us responded that way? So I want to challenge you to be a little more courageous with your prayer. You can start practicing today. In fact, you can start practicing in the next five minutes. Okay? I'd like you to stop for a second think about the most outlandish thing you could ask God for. Now, I'm not talking about a Bentley or a Lamborghini. Part of this is understanding the will of God, too. If you are certain that that is the will of God, go ahead. Lord, I'm 16, and I know you want me to drive a Lamborghini. It would be the first one, but maybe. But I would like you to consider what it is. That is the outlandish thing that you're not wanting to bring to God. That you're almost certain the answer is no to. There are people in this room today who have had miraculous answers to prayer. Have you got something in your mind yet? I'm going to pray. And I'm going to leave a space before I say amen, for you to bring that which you've been a little afraid to bring to God, to God. It may be confessional. It may be thankful. It may be request. Whatever it is. It may be, Lord, it's impossible, I know, but could you get the pastor to go to my house? It could be anything. Okay? Okay? Let's pray. Father God, 
Thank you for the story of this man who loved his friend, his servant, so much that it drew the depth of his faith out and it drew him to you. Thank you that everybody has access. Thank you that each of us is not only invited but requested to pray. Lord, we're kind of weak in this area as a nation, as a culture, as a people, and certainly as a church. But Lord, let it begin here today. Teach us to pray. Teach us to respond first in prayer. Draw us by the power of your Holy Spirit with such intensity that we cannot ignore it. Father, as as a congregation, we present what maybe feels a little outlandish to us. We do so with what faith we can muster. Father, I know what we just brought to you will take a miracle. And that is what we're asking for. Not because of any merit of our own, but because that's the invitation you gave us. And because of what Jesus has done to give access to your throne. So we lift up this congregation's prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.